0: People not only think that people who support the other party have the wrong issue positions, but actually think that they're a threat to the country.
1: Today on Office Hours, we sat down with political science professor Laurel harbridge Young, who specializes in American partisan conflict. In the weeks leading up to the election, we wanted to find out how party clashes play out in politics and in our everyday lives. Professor harbridge Young told us that partisan conflict is a top-down rather than a bottom-up
0: phenomenon elites are members of Congress, our state legislators and so forth, are very highly polarized. And the public has kind of sorted, you know, they've, they've matched up their ideology and their partisanship. They vote very heavily on party lines, but they're not as polarized as your political elites. They don't tend to take the most extreme positions on issues. They'll take, you know, the Democratic side of an issue if they're a Democrat or the Republican side of an issue if they're Republican, but they tend to not move too far off the middle. And then you obviously have a lot of people in the public who are not politically interested, and they tend to take the most middle position, or if you give them the option, they say, I haven't really thought about it.
1: If it's the elites that are pulling the parties apart, where do the American voters come in? The people are certainly,
0: perhaps you could say that they're a feedback loop. Once the elites kind of stake out these extreme positions and then individual people in the public, kind of your your mass public and your voters, polarize themselves along these same lines, they then maybe providing incentives for elected officials not to compromise, to stick to these positions because the elected officials fear retribution for compromising from kind of the core primary voters. But that follows after the elites initially move to these positions and not that the voters are driving them there in the first place.
1: There's a lot of talk about this period in politics being more divided than ever before. So we asked Professor Herbert Jiang if she's ever
0: seen anything like this before. I think that when we want to kind of understand some of the changes in polarization, it's actually helpful to even take a longer look because one of the things that's interesting when you take the longer look is actually the period that's the anomaly is the period of low polarization that ran from the 1940s through the early 1970s. Post-World War II era, you had a lot of moderates in Congress. There's a fair amount of overlap between the ideological positions of Democrats and Republicans. Kind of a, a good example that epitomizes it is that Dwight Eisenhower was actually asked by both parties to run for president.
1: But, like Professor Herbert Young said, that was an outlier.
0: More historically, if you start looking back at from the Civil War era on, or even before that, in fact, that you had very high levels of polarization in the past as well. So in one sense, we're returning to the historical norm of having high levels of polarization. But there are a couple of distinctions between this period and prior periods, which I think are worth noting. In past periods polarization was largely confined to one major issue of the day. And so much of the government activity involved that issue. So it really divided the two parties. But what's different today is that almost every issue that you can think of has come to be associated with either being on the left or the right. That basically everything has collapsed onto the same liberal conservative spectrum in a way that wasn't necessarily the case in past periods.
1: Politicians take these hard stands because in order to win elections in a two-party system, they have to form coalitions, for example, pulling together pro-business elites and blue-collar industrial workers under the same party umbrella.
0: So The parties may not care as much about whether there's an underlying principle that connects issues, but parties may be caring more about winning elections. And so you might have kind of these odd coalitions because in order to constitute a majority, You need this group of voters from over here, this other group of voters who have this other issue position. But coalitions are complicated to build and difficult to keep together. Right now, there's still internal fights within the party as to whether you really need to be more principled and conservative, and that would be the winning coalition, or whether you need to be bigger tent, more moderate, and bring in kind of swing voters and Democrats. And we certainly saw that after Romney's defeat in 2012, that some elements of the Republican Party said, if only we'd had a true conservative, others said, we have to reach out to minorities, to working class voters, and so forth. So back in the era when we kind of shifted from a less polarized to a more polarized time, kind of 1960s, 1970s, the Democrats faced a party in which they had a lot of fairly moderate and actually somewhat conservative members, particularly Democrats and represented districts in the South. And then you had the more liberal members in the Northeast. And so that was the divide. And essentially the group that didn't toe the party line per se was pulling the party in a more moderate direction. What we're seeing now is that on both sides, we're seeing more extreme coalitions or factions. The House Freedom Caucus within the Republican Party, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type of wing of the Democratic Party. So those are tricky in the sense of thinking about what they'll do to change the party because the party still is going to want to be able to win votes and to win the majority. So there is this tension between how far you can move to the left or right and still do that.
1: So Romney in 2012 brought out internal fights in the Republican Party. But this election cycle is revealing some intense divisions in both parties. We have Trump, who is an extremely divisive figure in the Republican Party. And the Bernie Sanders campaign exposed some serious ruptures in the Democratic Party as well. These ruptures have given candidates like Gary Johnson and Jill Stein a bigger platform this season. But is that enough to get them to the
0: White House? So third-party candidates can arise at various points in time, they can force the two parties to address issues that they might not have otherwise addressed, they can be even spoilers in elections, particularly at the presidential level, but they don't win any electoral college votes, they don't win any seats in the House of Representatives or in the Senate. So despite all of the conflict within the parties, that would lead me to say that we're still going to have a two-party system. But what I think is less clear coming out of this election cycle is whether the parties on both sides are going to continue exactly as they were or whether these internal divisions will end up with kind of winners versus losers.
1: So are we stuck with this political turmoil or can our government return to a healthy balance like the days of Eisenhower?
0: It kind of looks like this unstable equilibrium, this place in which voters are more moderate, whereas members of Congress and the parties are much more ideologically extreme. And yet we tend to think that members of Congress respond to electoral incentives, that if the public wants something and members of Congress don't give it to them, the public will vote them out of office. Yet we're not seeing that. And so we still haven't quite figured out whether this is going to be the new normal or whether this will change. If
1: it doesn't change, if this is the new normal... How does it affect us on a personal level?
0: Individual people tend to move to be around like-minded people. So even beyond being physically around like-minded people, people can choose their friendship circles around like-minded people. Social media, people can unfollow friends that perhaps don't espouse the same political views that they do people may in fact be pulled further to the extremes because they're surrounded by kind of like-minded individuals and it kind of reinforces their position and that even when they encounter dissonant information on the internet, they're not necessarily having a conversation face-to-face where they might ask a friend, hey, I don't agree with your position. Can you tell me why you came to have that particular position? Instead, you just see it on Facebook or on Twitter or something and you either don't read it at all, you read it just pushing back against it.
1: So does social media and this day-to-day political conflict affect
0: non-political decisions? People not only think that people who support the other party have the wrong issue positions, but actually think that they're a threat to the country. They also more and more have views that they would be greatly bothered if their son or daughter married someone from the opposing party. And that's not something that you saw in the U.S. several decades ago. Given the tense
1: environment of this particular election season, and this period in our politics overall, it's especially important for us to exercise our democratic responsibilities. So those of you with absentee ballots, fill them out, register to vote, and make sure your voice is heard. I'm Maddie Fox. My producer is Isabel Robertson. The audio editor of The Daily Northwestern is Corey Mueller. And our editor-in-chief is Julia Jacobs. Thanks for listening to Office Hours, and we'll see you in two weeks.